welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Ozzy Nelson here in the studio as my guest on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Since 2003, Ozzy has served as CEO of Nelson Worldwide, an award-winning design firm headquartered in Minneapolis. Founded by his father in 1997, Ozzy joined the firm when they were 15 people. Today, they are over 700 people with 18 offices around the United States. Nelson is known today for its diverse practice areas from workplace, education, hospitality, healthcare, sports and entertainment, to fashion and retail. Their clients include Google, Hershey, Cisco, Saks Fifth Avenue, Simon Property Group, Macy's, Hilton, Target, my daughter's favorite uh, American Girl doll, <laughs> Yum Brands, and many, many more. Since Ozzy became CEO, the firm has executed more than 40 mergers and acquisitions, landing Nelson among the top 10 architecture firms in the United States. Ozzy and the firm have won countless awards. He is also a member of the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, which I'm a member of and I've talked about here, the Twin Cities chapter. Ozzy, it's an honor to have you here. I've long been an admirer of you and your firm. Well, very gracious of you. And I'm very excited to be here, Christian. I'm uh, a real fan of what you're doing here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so your, your, your real name is John Ozzy Nelson Jr. Just curious where Ozzy yeah. came from. <laughs> so uh, I'm, a, as you said, I'm a junior. And uh, being a junior, uh, in my case, I was at best Johnny and at worst Little Johnny. Okay. And uh, in ninth grade, I went to a freshman uh, or I went to a, a French class and we had a substitute teacher who asked if I was any relation to Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, the <laughs> famous TV show. Uh, and it stuck. And uh, okay. uh, I took it. Uh, I, interesting story about that. I took it to college and wasn't sure if I was going to, you know, make this break and take the name. And uh, I ended up knowing no one in college but winning freshman class president because of the name exclusively. <laughs> so uh, so it's uh, it served me well. That's right. It's like that Eddie Murphy movie. That's yes. The name you know. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> That's right. That's really funny. So this is the first time we're actually uh, meeting in person. And as I said, I've long been an admirer of you uh, and the way you've built your firm. And in my own mind, um, I'm emulating kind of what you've built through sort of acquisitions and trying to hire the right people, diversity of projects, um, or project types, great design. Um, and, and I think of great design as sort of you know, corporate great design, which is a, probably a little bit different than other aspects of, of kind of what we do. Um, so, you know, and, and from an outsider, you seem to have a great culture and the way you've merged all Thank of you. these firms. So um, it, it really is truly a, a pleasure to have you here. Um, I have to ask these questions. <laughs> if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about architects? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I um, thought a lot about, you know, for, you know, first of all, there's a um, there's a. Uh, uh, you know, this this whole concept of uh, 
talking to architects about what bothers them about <laughs> architects, I think is is very provocative. Um, I think you know the you know there's obviously the stereotype of the you know the arrogance or the self self absorption. Um, you know, I I think the reality is uh, you know as I prepared for our conversation today and I look back. Um, I think there's been such an evolution on the, in the industry. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, the contrarian in me wants to say, uh, you know, it's the same thing that bothers me about a Democrat or a Republican. Right. There's this, you know, there's this stigma. Yeah. Um, and then there's the reality of, of what is going on. So, um, you know, again, I, I I think if you if you take the stereotype, you know, it is about self-absorption. It is about elitism. Uh, it is about uh, a, a lack of collaboration. Um, but I do see uh, in real ways that breaking down every single day in terms of the, you know, market forces um, and just a change in culture that comes with generations. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Even in in, in our you know YPO, you know, there is actually a, a, a small group, but a group of architects. And we get together and we talk about kind of the industry and what exactly is going on and how can we support each other, which I don't think was the case 20 years ago. You know, and, we were you all know, enemies. And the other thing I, you know, I reflected on is, you know, part of that comes with sort of an education and the wrapping yourself around whatever label you want. Um, but I do think that, you know, creative people just process things differently. Yeah. Uh, and I think that also, again, in terms of decision making uh, and styles of work, uh, you know, creatives work differently than more linear people. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Is there anything in particular about the industry as a whole that just drives you crazy? Is it something that really gnaws at you? Um, I think it's the looking back more than looking forward. Um, I think it's an industry that has always been an apprentice industry. Uh, and there's a certain, uh, not you know, it's, it's great to have pride, but it's another thing to be stuck on the way things have always been done. Yeah. Um, and I think there is uh, there has been and will continue to be a tremendous amount of disruption um, in the industry. And I think there's just there tends to be many people who want to cloak themselves around the way things have been done um, and want to look at new ways of doing things as uh, not authentic. Right. I, I, I appreciate that. That's great. Um, so you you have a business background um, and I'm sure that you believe that that's contributed to your success ultimately, you know, as an owner of an architecture firm and design firm. Um, in your mind, you know, do you believe that architecture and, and design are an art or some sort of social dialogue with the world or, or is it a business and problem solving for a client? Like what, what's your take on yeah. that as someone, I almost want to say as like a, a business person outsider, but now your entire life has been in this, yeah. in this field. Uh, you know, again, as I, as I've sort of um, reflected on the journey in, in preparation of our conversation, um, you know, I was, uh, uh, for those those old enough to remember, I was Alex P. Keaton, right? I was the Michael J. Fox <laughs> character that came into this industry, uh, and um, and and saw a very different view of architects and thought that this was you know really something that um, you know was a business problem. Uh, you know, I, I I very honestly have come to appreciate that uh, it, it's both art and science. Um, it's it's both inspiration and poetry and business. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the challenge, but that's also the exciting part about this industry is 
being able to thoughtfully integrate those things. Um, you know, I think a business that doesn't have rigor and discipline and strategy won't be successful. But on the other hand, you have to, in any business, adapt to, you know, what your employee base is, what your audience is, and ultimately what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I think for me in, in my firm, sometimes we separate the, 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 let's call it the real architecture, the art you know, from the day to day. And there are things that come in the door and will, you know, everyone will stop and pause and say, whoa, for a minute, for, for, we have, we have to take a little time here and think about this because this is real architecture. This could have a real impact on society. And then as a corporate architecture firm, as you know, there are, you're doing a lot of what the client needs and wants and for their business and which there's nothing wrong with that. And yes. you, you parse the two out and, and you move on with your day. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I just want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the model itself. Um, you know, do you think, you know, especially again, as what we do as corporate architects, not as black cape architects, that we need to talk, you know, amongst one another about sort of our fee structure and how we get paid and when we get paid. Um, this is something that I can tell you as a designer moving up in, a, in an architecture firm and then having owned an architecture firm now for the last 10 years, I have a very different perspective, right? Um, and so I just, just curious of your thoughts and especially at your scale, you know, Stuff's tight. It's tight. It's hard to make money sometimes. How do you deal with yes. that? <laughs> yes. Your audience can't see, but I'm nodding my head. <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I think I, I think the business model really is critical to that whole idea of how you how you make money, obviously, and the whole pricing dynamic. Um, I obviously, uh, if, if, if you look at the way that, that we've evolved, I believe in scale and I believe that, um, uh, you know, s scale is something that uh, it can allow you to, cert to hit certain price points that you couldn't otherwise. Um, I do think that there's a whole wallet share part of what we should be doing. Um, you know, I listened to one of your previous uh, podcasts, and I think it was David Supple who talked about you know, uh, architects used to be the master builders. Right. Uh, and if you really think about um, uh, at, a, at a high level, what architects have been doing, it's been like sort of carving out all the things that they could have been to be this more niche thing. Right. They they got out of being the master builder. Uh, then they didn't want to get into interiors. So interiors were born. <laughs> Uh, and, um, and I think this is an industry, uh, and this may be unpopular with the audience, but, uh, you know, the, 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 from my perspective, what gave way to the tenant rep and the project management organizations is that architects weren't doing that. They couldn't yeah. self-police themselves, you know, so, you know, had the architect been able to self-police <laughs> themselves, be the master builder, be all these other things, we wouldn't be talking about pricing. Yeah. But when you keep looking at what you don't want to do um, and keep carving out core parts of where the business model is, you're going to find yourself in a place where you're very vulnerable um, and you don't have a lot of leverage. And I think, I think leverage is key mm. to holding your own in any pricing conversation. Yeah, it's true. If you hire a lawyer, you don't hire an intermediate to manage the lawyer, yep. right? And you do do that in our in our world in our industry, which is really interesting. Um, do you ever? So you're you're not an architect by by practice by training. Do you get? 
Do you ever get pushback like the from the AIA and or you know traditional architects? Uh, of course. <laughs> not, it's let's see. It's a uh, ten thirty. So not today yet. <laughs> um, I but but honestly, I do think that um, uh, that's also about evolving in terms of really understanding them, understanding the industry. Um, you know, I think I get a lot less pushback today than I did, uh, you know, earlier in my career. But that has as much to do about the way that. I engage in the conversation right. um, as as how they've come to see me. Yeah. I mean, the previous firm that I worked at, HLW, you know, they brought in a business person to their credit and that business person turned that firm around um, and is a valuable part of that organization. And, you know, that that, that always kind of stuck out in my mind, like, oh, here's this is interesting. Maybe we need help on the business side as architects. Yes. <laughs> and one last question about architects, and this is going to kind of fold into really how you built Nelson, but when you're sort of looking to make acquisitions, um, and I'm pretty sure I understand kind of a lot of your acquisitions, do architects have a plan for their retirement? Or are they always just working to the very end and then at some point they think, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? I have to retire, sell my firm, or it just goes away. What happens to my people? Do you have a sense of that, having done so many acquisitions? Uh, I think that's all over the board, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I do think one of the things that, that, that changed, uh, and, I, and I don't know exactly the time frame here, but it clearly it changes that, you know, uh, architects would build a practice. Um, they, would, they would take the lion's share of the profits. That would be their retirement. And then... They would turn the firm over to the people that were there before. And then I guess there's, you know, somebody somewhere along the line said, hey, I could sell this thing. Right. <laughs> and so they get the investment baker. They sell for a million bucks. And then now all of a sudden there's an enterprise value to something that people didn't think had an enterprise value. Um, I also think that, um, you know, I, I often joke when I joined my father's 14 person firm, uh, the technology guy was the guy that could string the drafting board, right? <laughs> and if you think about how capital intensive, uh, how marketing intensive, um, just how complex this business has become, um, I think there's this combination of um, an industry that's changing so fast that there are a lot of people that um, are opting out where they may have not retired before. Um, and I think there's this idea that people now want to monetize what they've built. So the, the combination of those two things is, is, has driven a lot of the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that and your journey from joining your, your father's firm when they were 14, 15 people, um, you know, to this extraordinary scale and growth. And, and I, I remember when I uh, you know, bought Mancini Duffy for all intents and purposes, myself and, and my other partners, um, you know, we had we had hired a uh, an executive coach and we talked about sort of growth scales and they show this, um, you know, they show this sort of uh, let's call it mountain climbing chart. Right. And it, it's all about sort of the, you know, the, the the peaks and plateaus and then the valleys. Right. And it's very difficult to take a, you know, a company from zero to a million dollars in revenue. And it's really difficult to then get to, you know, five million dollars in revenue to ten million dollars in revenue and 50, 100 and so on and so forth. And those jumps come with extraordinary complexity. 
right? Your, your, the complexity side of your organization goes way up as you jump to those things. And, and frankly, I struggle right now with getting above the $20, $25 million mark, right? Like that's, so I'm pushing and pushing. We had COVID in there, probably would have uh, would have gotten there, but still, um, you know, now we're back in that in that range. But that jump to fifty for me seems so daunting, right? I've got a double in size and double in everything, right? And how the hell do I manage all of you know? I can barely manage what we've got going on right now. Um, so, you know, can you walk me through your mindset when you started, you know, with fifteen people? Um, and you know. The journey kind of breaks into really uh, three different uh, part legs of the journey, if you will. Um, you know, one is um, experiencing a fair amount of organic growth, growing the million dollar firm to the ten million dollar firm, um, but a very heavy concentration on one client, Bank of America. Um, and in, in fact, at ten million, I think ninety percent of our revenue is coming from Bank of America. Oh wow. Um, too. <laughs> which was very risky. And I didn't really see the risk until there, there were some changes at the client <laughs> level. And it's like, and so I, I think one of the, the interesting things is I think it, there's a danger to look at our story and think that I was very risk averse. Um, it was actually risk that drove me. It was just the risk that I saw and maybe the outsiders didn't see. So 90% concentration in a client that I'm not sure I'm going to keep is a big risk. Right. Uh, and so the first leg of the journey um, was to acquire interiors firms that would give and, and and the bank came to us and said, look, you know, you guys are number 37. Gensler's number one. Uh, shouldn't we be talking to 36 other firms in between you guys? <laughs> and uh, and they wanted scale and they wanted a platform. So in three years, um, I came up with this non-cash formula um, because the one thing I didn't have was cash. And I approached, uh, I was able to do a deal with 13 firms and grow from 10 million to 53 million and basically build that network of all interior firms. Um, that was just in time for 0809. Perfect. <laughs> and now I've got all this overhead and all these, what I called feed me, feed me firms because they were good at servicing their clients, but they weren't entrepreneurial. And now all the faucets had turned off. Yeah. Um, and it was a, it was a real slog to get through 0809. So so with that, just just to back up the, yep. the cash side of things. Yes. So how do you acquire firms without cash? What's the so, mechanism yep. to do that? So in those days, um, my formula was, look, you know, you're feeling the same pressure I am. You're two or three million. Um, your clients are demanding a network of you. Uh, this industry is getting more and more complicated. I've got all the back office, plus I have a network. So you come in and be the Chicago office or the Minneapolis office, um, and let's create a new co. Um, I wouldn't do any deal that I didn't have at least 51% ownership in. Okay. Um, and I will guarantee your salary and your compensation levels. Um, and I will even say that if the EBITDA doesn't move, I don't get a penny which is a big risk. Yeah. But you've been stuck at this level. So if you do go above the EBITDA level, 
I want a distribution based on the percentage of equity that you have and I have. Got it. And as I did more and more deals, I was able to go the literally, literally the first deal was 5149. <laughs> uh, and we were able toward the end of that that cycle of non-cash deals to get to like an 80-20 model where we were getting the bulk of the distribution if in fact we got them bigger. Got okay. So then 0809 hits, you're still concentrated in sort of interiors and financials. And I think what what I find most admirable about you is your pivot. Right. You're almost like doubling down and saying, nope, actually, we're going to do more. We're going to grow even even more substantially. Um, And, um, you know, I I want my leadership team to listen up to this because (laughs) I am constantly pushing this. And, you know, you you've diversified the practice to do all sorts of different things from out of the ground architecture to, you know, large, complex, you know, buildings and and campuses. and retail and hospitality, all of those those things. And I I'm doing that as well, obviously not at the, the same scale, but that's constantly what I'm preaching to everyone, because I watched the same thing in in 0809. And I'm not I'm not risk adverse. I I am all about risk. Definitely. You know what? What I've what I've proven is I'm willing to take risks. However, I love hedging my risk with the ability to do a lot of different things. And I find sometimes I, I feel kind of silly when a client says or a prospective client says, well, what do you do? And I kind of rattle off everything, you know, and it's one of those things. Am I am I sort of, a you know, what is it? Jack of all trades and expert in none kind of thing. But I don't feel that that's really what architects are. We don't do sports stadiums. Uh, that I can say, but we kind of do everything else, you know, even airports at this point. Um, so take me through that process. You know, how did you make that pivot? Um, and then ultimately, what you know, did YPO help in that in that scale model? Yeah. Um, so, you know, YPO was a great experience for me. Um, I think just having access to, you know, when you when you're in, a, you know, a, when you start in a small family business, there can be nothing more insular than that, right? <laughs> uh, and so YPO expanded a network and uh, being in a forum and, you know, all the things that come with that kind of a professional organization um, and, and, and getting beyond the headlines and being able to really talk to people about, you know, how they've approached things was invaluable to me. Yeah. Um, there's one person at this point in the, in the, in the journey, uh, I always love to give credit to, and that's Mark Zweig. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, I was having a conversation with Mark. Um, I had, I actually had called Ed Friedrichs. Uh, uh, Ed Friedrichs had called me when we acquired GHK, and he came and called to me in, in Minneapolis. He'd already retired from Gensler. And uh, we had breakfast. He's like, so, like, what are you up to? You know? <laughs> and and we had, you know, we had this really good conversation and he, he was helpful in some observations. And then a couple of years later, I was actually I was trying to get uh, a deal done in the Bay Area. And I was I felt like I was wasting too much time. It was a, you know, very design centric uh, environment where there wasn't a lot of the same market pressures that everybody else was feeling. And it was because of that, I wasn't getting traction. So I called Ed and Ed said, you know what? Call Mark Swag. You ever hear Mark Swag? Call Mark Swag. And within like 10 minutes of talking to Mark, Mark says, look, it sounds like here's what you're trying to do. You're trying to grow your practices. You're trying to grow your services and you're trying to grow your geographies. Those are the three circles. And where do you want to end up? And I said, well, I want to end up, you know, north of 100 million. I want to have this diversified practices. He said, so it doesn't matter what what 
sequence you buy companies in as long as it's advancing the ball to where you want to end up. Mm -hmm. And so once I started to use those three circles, <clears throat> literally we went from 40 to 80 million in 18 months. Wow. Uh, because the, 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 the deal flow changed because I, I was much broader in terms of what I was looking for. Um, I would say the thing that has been highly complicated about the way that we um, have chosen to do this. And again, um, I have felt a real race against time in terms of having a, an organization at times that was sort of half built and having to get to that other side. Um, you know, we were not in the industrial architecture business. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to make the movement into that. Um, and, you know, you, you're you're kind of building eight practices at the same time, uh, all simultaneously, while you're also building out a geographic network. I, you know, unless you have a really strong stomach, I don't suggest <laughs> doing it that way. But the, the, the point is, that's where I've, I really felt we needed to go to be to become economically sustainable, and we needed to get there as quickly as we could. Um, so there was a lot, I think, a, a lack of, there was a, I would tell people where we were going. There were not a lot of people that believed we would get there. <laughs> um, and I think it's also hard to attract the talent, the top talent for any of those practices when you're not there yet. Yeah. So there is a lot of, um, there was a lot of sort of concessions around the acquisitions that we could get done, uh, either because, you know, capital kind of came later in the game for us. So, you know, we went as far as we could with that non-cash formula. Um, then we were using some capital and it wasn't really until I did the two large acquisitions in 08 or of, um, 2018, where we uh, more than doubled our size and brought three organizations together that okay. really had the right capital structure to get that done, right. and was able to 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 have a, a to really handpick the two organizations that I thought would complete the whole the whole organization that we were trying to build. Yeah. So that was the next couple of questions of mine were, you know, have you taken on investors, I guess, in a sense, right, to, you know, private equity or whatever it might be to help, you know, bolster yourself? Yeah. So our, uh, I uh, have retained 80 percent ownership of the firm. Uh, we have uh, shareholders in the company that are both active employees uh, as well as uh, a couple of legacy uh, shareholders that came from former acquisitions. Okay. Um, <clears throat> our primary structure uh, is is all either MES or senior lending. Uh, so, you know, we've been able to use the, the capital structure and still main, maintain a large part of the equity. Okay. Yeah, I feel like for me, I still need to get to a scale, like a certain scale, before I can go and, and say to someone, hey, look at all these things. Um, now give me money to invest, that I can now invest and double, triple, quadruple, right? So, yeah, that's always a struggle, right? A lot of people will say to me, even in YPO, why don't you just take on private equity? And go, well, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> right, private right. equity is going to look at an architecture firm and go, what the hell are you talking about? There's no value here. <laughs> right. And plus, you know, when you, when you, you know, you reach a point where you really start to take advantage of the scale and until that point, the EBITDA is not there. Right. So you're really, you're parting with so much equity. If, if, if 
if you make that decision early on, yeah, that you never really recover. Exactly. Yeah. So how are you? What's the strategy in terms of finding those firms? How are you finding them? Is it Zweig? Do, I'm very familiar with Zweig. They actually helped us with our with our ownership transition here, yeah. uh, and I was just on their their podcast as well. Um, and I think Mark's definitely a future guest here. We're going to get we're going to get him. <laughs> He's to come a real on. character. I love Mark. <laughs> um, and so. How are you? How are you finding these firms? You know, and and even getting to that conversation, Lily, and picking up the phone. Like, hey, I like to buy your firm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there is a fair amount of that. I mean, in the in the early days, uh, it it was purely driven by looking on the environment and either, um, you know, buying a pesky competitor. Uh, you know, I've I've always looked for um, firms that have a history of keeping their clients. Um, if you, if you're able to keep your clients, um, and, and your people, that says a lot about, you know, the success that the way you manage the stability of the firm, uh, you know, you know, I, one of the reasons I have always preferred, uh, merger acquisition to, to heavy organic growth is, uh, again, back to the risk profile, you know, people always say, um, you know, people point to the integration risk and, and all of that. But I look at organic growth, <clears throat> you know, so you you go and you you buy some or you you, you hire some leader. And then the leader comes in and says, well, I don't have a design leader. So then you go and you get a design leader. Uh-huh. And then that person says, well, I don't have a technical leader. Now you have a whole bench of people and then they go out and pitch and the, people, and the client says, have you guys ever worked? No, we never worked together, right? <laughs> so now I get a million dollars worth of expense and no, no revenue yeah. being generated. So, you know, I, I think you know, the, the, the organic growth uh, is not only slower, it has, it has risks that people a lot of times don't identify. Yeah. Um, um, to the identification, um, as a known acquirer, um, I probably get, you know, five or six emails or phone calls or whatever a week. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that, um, I would say humbly, I think we've not only done the acquisitions, I think we've done them well. So I think there's a lot of people that when they think about selling their firm, they'll, they'll put us on the list as a firm that, you know, they want to take yeah. a look at them. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, I would say that there's just a, a, a lot that comes to us. Um, I am always looking though, uh, as we compete in the marketplace, you know, who, who's a firm that's really interesting that I respect. Um, okay. and I think the other thing about the way that I look at merger acquisition is, um, some people are looking to kind of, uh, almost a kind of a roll up strategy, um, I'm always looking for how does, how, you know, how does one and one make three? How does that firm come in and really help to transform us? Um, and, and, and again, when you, when you see those people in the marketplace, it's pretty obvious the ones that you think could make a difference if they were a part of your organization. Do they all become Nelson on day one or is it where they keep sort of some of their identity? Yeah. And how do you roll the cultures together? Yeah. So. Um, I'll give you today's answer, today's <laughs> answer uh, is that um, I think it's really important. I, I always say um, that you should take the legacy name of whoever you acquired and the Nelson name. Um, and after the integration's done, when people close their eyes and think of Nelson, they think of both okay. organizations. I like that. So have we really maximized the brand equity of the organization that we've acquired uh, before they've cut over to Nelson, and and we do that in a you know a number of ways, but there's a there's usually a co-branding period of time 
Um, but we're, but we're, 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 I think we do a good job of making sure that people understand that, you know, Brand X has joined us. Um, I am looking at one acquisition in particular um, that's, that's in the industry, but kind of an interesting segment. Um, and I might keep their brand. Okay. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're getting to a certain size and scale where it's not necessarily assumed, you know, if, if there's a real uh, uh, synergy between what we do as an organization, uh, i.e., if we were to buy somebody that's really strong in industrial, we would want them to be Nelson and we would want to bol- bolster our industrial. If we're buying somebody that doesn't neatly fit into the eight practices that we're in um, and that there's, a, there's an opportunity to capture a different part of the market, I would be open to to them keeping their brand. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, hard question: Have any of these failed? And you don't have to name names, but have, have none. <laughs> Forty plus, they've all gone. Uh, yeah, um, especially you know. Um, uh, although I have I have had ones where it, there was a well capitalized deal and it, and it still didn't work out. I think the. The earlier ones where um, I had to be more uh, opportunistic and I had to I had to I had to make concessions, Um, you know, the bigger the organization has gotten, the less of a concession I can make with culture. In the early days, I made a lot of concessions on culture. Sure. um, And that made the integrations all the more complicated. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And in, in my experience, you know. Uh, it was before my time. Ancini bought TSC Design, and they didn't do a really good job with that. And to to that point, there's only one person left over from that deal of a hundred person firm, and that's actually my partner Bill Mandera, uh, who was ironically wanted to be the first one out the door when that happened. So it's it's pretty funny. But then when we've done acquisitions there, you know, we've learned from from Bill's not Bill's mistake, but from that that mistake period and sort of that integration into culture is extremely important. It's not going to always work out really well or a hundred percent of the time, but really trying to. I, I think you're right taking. There's a reason why those companies were successful, right? And and so, what was successful about them, and how can they help us? I don't pretend to have all the answers. So how can how can we feed off of one another? Maybe they do things better than us, and great. Then let's do it that way, kind of thing. You know, I really have come to appreciate um, in terms of uh, you know, uh, I often think, what would the Johnson administration be without Vietnam, right? <laughs> and, uh, and we all have our Vietnams, right? Um, you know, I, I, I think particularly in culture, in merger acquisition, um, how much of the of the company being acquired is a cult culture? Mm-hmm. Um, and and, you know, there have there are just some organizations that are so wedded to what they have been uh, that no matter what you do and no matter what the logic is going forward in terms of better career, better compensation, better, you know, all those other things. Uh, you know, there's just some organizations that can't move on from what they've been. And, yeah. and that's one thing that I, I've learned to really look for. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of your sort of day to day, you know, how do you stay connected with such a large organizations? And, you know, do you go to all the offices? How, how does that work? I have struggle. I struggle with going to three offices. I can't imagine you know, 18 plus. <laughs> I'm uh, well, first of all, I'm very blessed uh, to have a high energy level and not need a lot of sleep. So <laughs> Me too. Uh, I um, I do. And it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, pre-pandemic, um, 
I, I, I really saw my role um, much differently. I did, today, I'm much more, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a combination of outward focus, but really uh, operationally focused. And so our structure is uh, eight practices. Each has a practice leader. Uh, practice leaders responsible for uh, market vision, uh, revenue generation, best practice, and a business leader who think of as a COO for that practice. Mm. And they work hand in glove to run the practice. Both of those positions report to me. So there's a there's a regular cadence in which I'm connected with those folks to have a conversation, not only about the operational side, but the the vision side of where we're going. And I find that um, that's, you know, I've had a lot of different structures over the years. That's been really successful for me in terms of staying connected with them. Okay. Um, uh, I do, before the pandemic, I was on the road four days a week. Uh, I am now on the road. Mm, uh, two days a week is probably a heavy week for me. Okay. Um, I'm, you know, really, and it's interesting because I would, get on a plane, I'd go to an office, I'd be there very quickly, then I was on to the next office. Um, and I, to some degree, just felt like I was chasing my tail and I wasn't connecting with people as much as I yeah. I, I hoped. Um, I do think this combination of um, a regular cadence of Zoom meetings and personal, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm in New York. Um, I timed it with your podcast. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I was with, uh, you know, the New York team for two hours yesterday. Right. Um, and so I, th- I think there's no replacement for that. Um, but I, you know, I do think that, um, you know, the, the whole post pandemic environment makes a lot more sense in terms of hybrid, in terms of in-person and using the right mix. Are you doing things like business development and going on client pitches? Do you get involved to that level? I, yeah, I will. Okay. Um, <clears throat> particularly if it's, um, I mean, the biggest thing I can say in a pitch, um, which is is obviously genuine, is you know the very top of the house <laughs> is, cares about this, and um, you'll get my cell phone number. And um, if we don't deliver everything that we're going to say that we will, yeah. you know, call me. Yeah. Um, and then it's an opportunity to check in from there. So yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> there's a, I don't know, some maybe five percent of the pitches uh, that I that I do participate in one way or another. That's great. I always say, you know, and I, I try to instill this in in our in our company as well that, you know, winning a project, getting a client, it's a miracle. It really is, you know, and it's funny. I, I was with Chad Oppenheim in our uh, YPO forum, Architects Forum, and he said the same thing, like unsolicited. You know, every client is a miracle. And it's true. Uh, and I do the same thing. I, I, you know, I give the clients like you can call me anytime. Like I really I am genuinely grateful to have clients like they are. I, you know, wow, you put a lot of trust in me and, and, and our firm and our and a lot of money and all of those things. It's it really is a wonderful a wonderful thing to win to win clients, and as you, as you know, many times that's an intangible where they're yes. just making a leap of faith, yep. and that that's when it means the most. Yep, exactly. So, a little bit about your backstory. Where did you grow up? You know, what did you want to be growing up? And <laughs> how did your father get into the business? Is your father still alive? My father is alive. Okay, great. Uh, so he's enjoying watching this. He, he <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Is he involved in the business? Um, he was. Uh, until the pandemic and okay. he's had, he's had some health challenges okay. and so, uh, less so, but, uh, very, very passionate about design and, That's uh, uh, st- you know, still has an office and again, until the pandemic, he was, you know, in three <laughs> days a week or something like that. That's so, great. 
Yeah. So where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, and, um, uh, you know, my, my, I guess the, the kind of break in my, uh, story is I, um, at 12, 11 or 12 became a street hockey player and then became an ice hockey player. And, uh, my hockey coach then went away to a boarding school in new England. Um, and if you're a hockey player in Philadelphia, you know, there's like three arenas in Philadelphia and this idea to be able to go to a place where you had your own, you know, arena and, uh, and you could really take a run and maybe being a college hockey player. So, uh, so I went away, uh, to boarding school in new England. And then, uh, I wanted to go to Babson college and I got waitlisted and I didn't really have a backup. And so again, my hockey coach said, well, there's a couple of schools in Minnesota. If you want to look at those. And I went out and I looked at the university that I ended up uh, attending university of St. Thomas absolutely fell in love with it. Got into Babson and turned Babson down to go to St. Thomas. Uh, and then I guess, you know, this series of bridges and sequences in my life. Uh, so I met my wife in freshman orientation. Okay. And uh, we got married three weeks after we graduated. Oh, wow. And uh, moved back to Philadelphia for about 10 years. And um, I just couldn't get the Midwest out of, you know, there was just something about Minneapolis in terms of the perfect size. You know, we have we're big enough that we have the sports teams and the arts and all of that, uh, but small enough that it's still very kind of an intimate feel. And um, so when I was um, when my oldest daughter was 10, we moved to Minneapolis uh, with the idea that I wanted to do this. I was going to be on the road all the time. Um, no office in Minneapolis, by the way. Okay. And, uh, and the, uh, you talk about things working out. So, um, 90 days after I cut myself off from the East coast, except by air travel, nine 11 happened. <laughs> and I remember sitting at my desk and putting my head in my hands. And I always think of myself this somebody thinks more from my head than my heart. And I, this is what happens when you listen to your heart. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> uh, but obviously it all worked out, but, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, kind of a curious path in terms of, yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. Did you want to be in, in this business, you know, sort of when you went to business school, you know, uh, to be honest, um, uh, I wanted to build scale. Okay. Um, and the, and the, and the early day story is like, so I came in the business, I was in the business for two years and, um, it seemed like the craziest thing I'd ever done. You know, I'm this Michael P. Keaton character <laughs> in this 14 person design firm. Um, and I, I had talked with my dad and I was preparing to, to leave the firm. And, um, this is when corporate America started to, uh, outsource design services mm. and we won a very large assignment for what was Cigna insurance at that time where they got rid of 20 people internally. Um, and I still remember the meeting, we won the work and we met with the former head of real estate and he had this box of projects that were like half started and they were all bound with rubber bands. And we, we, we went from like the retail business, i.e. one project at a time to the wholesale business where it was about managing portfolios and project wow. management and relationship management, which all of a sudden now created a role for me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that, you know, that was the beginning of, you know, what we were doing for Bank of America when we were 10 million was really continuing that story sure. of not having the one-off architect mentality, but having that relationship mentality where 
we'd help them do merger integrations. Then they'd put us on site and we would do all the day two work and then we'd okay. move on to the next merger. So, you know, I guess my... Um, you were like the early JLL. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there again had to pivot our business again because a lot of the stuff that we were doing in the JLLs and the CBRs, yeah. would, you know, we went from being their partner to them moving into those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, a, it's such a great story, sort of that... that uh, you know, that scale, a lot of YPOers too. And I'll say this about, um, um, you know, family businesses. One thing I always thought, you know, before I got into YPO, cause there's a lot of family businesses in there was, Oh, these guys have it easy. <laughs> and what I've learned is that no, actually a family business is very difficult, especially if you want to change it, pivot it, grow it. Um, you know, it's, you're not starting on third base. You're, you're, you're starting fresh regardless of what's there. So I have, you know, it, it's again, admiration for, for what you've, you've built. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit kind of as we, you know, kind of close out here about, you know, today and sort of the future of Nelson. Um, how has COVID affected your business? And then what are you doing with the return to office? You know, are you guys back in the office where three days a week, two from home? Um, are different regions doing it differently? Like our New Jersey office does it a little bit differently than our New York office. How, how are you how are you dealing with all of this? Um, yeah. So uh, first of all, I would say in, in general, it comes you know, it's not a line. It's very genuine from my heart. I think we're a 700 person startup. I mean, that's the way I think about <laughs> I like us, that. you know. We, we uh, especially with this clarity around eight practices, each of them have, um, and, and, and certainly there's an overarching vision and purpose to boldly transform the human experience. And that's what, that's what hopefully uh, inspires people that work for us as opposed to work for, you know, another design firm that has another purpose. So, um, and ironically, since moving our P&L to the practice model, um, you know, the fear would be you'd have more silos I see so much more collaboration because there's so much more clarity around mm -hmm. what each one of the practices does. Um, uh, in, term, in terms of the post-pandemic world, I, the, the pandemic was hard on us. Um, uh, I'm hard on me. And I would <laughs> say that um, uh, I now had this Ferrari to drive with all these different practices. And I was, you know, quite frankly, uh, a little bit too slow to click to move to double down on industrial or double down on the on the practices that you know so we did okay i think we could have done a lot better mm -hmm. if we had 10 million dollars more industrial business for instance sure. <laughs> um and but you know again i think when you're when you sit at the helm of an organization that has changed so much you're constantly have to keep challenging yourself to change in terms of the way that you think yeah um so post pandemic now that's crystal clear for me and i'm <laughs> Um, I'm really kind of looking at each one of the, the practices uniquely in terms of the opportunities that they have. And I'm and I'm also surprised, you know, like I would have thought, um, you know, with a looming recession, if it ever comes, <laughs> that, you know, it, that hospitality would be the practice that, you know, is really beleaguered. And yet that's the one that's exploding. I know, right. I know. Um, Restaurants so, for us. We, we, right. we, we, the word every day is a new restaurant. Food and beverage is going crazy. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you know, spec industrial has really kind of grind to a halt because of the interest rates. Yeah. So um, I, I think we are we are very well positioned with these practices uh, but we need to be really sensitive to look at the individual drivers for each one of them and not think of them stereotypically. Um, in terms of back to the office, I'll, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, 
I think my position has been uh, sort of portrayed as the trader of workplace because, <laughs> you know, I have all these workplace brokers and I'm like, you should be demanding your people to come back. And I, you know, I am not the CEO that's going to pound his fist and say, come back to the office. I, you know, um, we have a three day a week policy in terms of having people back in the office. Um, I do think that, uh, especially in an, in an organization where your P&L and reporting structures is in a practice, the office has a very important role as the community that brings those practices together yeah. and that that community has to be a united front to the city that it's in and how it represents us. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot of case by cases where, you know, if somebody's in our support services group and they're in the marketing team and they happen to be in New York and they drive or commute all the way into New York <laughs> just to get on a Zoom call to talk to people in other cities, right? Um, they're eventually going to quit because it doesn't make any sense to them, yeah. right? Um, but they also should be part of the things that we purposely do to get everybody together, those social events, those cultural events. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful to walk a balance here where um, I, I do recognize that that three-day-a-week cadence in general, makes sense to bring people together. Um, I, but, but, you know, the other piece of that, too, is where I think a lot of uh, our clients are thinking differently than I. If I'm only going to pay for three days of a week, um, I'm going to rotate that, right? <laughs> I'm not going to pay for 100% of the space to sit empty four days a week, right? Yeah, that's true. So there's also, you know, a rotation that I want to work out. And, you know, that means that not everybody, you're not always going to get Monday or Friday to be off, right? Yep. We're going to have to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to work that out. And that's, you know, whether that's a lottery system or you, you all work it out amongst yourselves. Yeah. Um, but I do think that hybrid is here to stay. Um, and the trade-off that I would like to get is... You know, I, I think when you can inspire people and when they feel a sense of connection, um, you know, you're going to get the most out of them. So, you know, hopefully there's a there's a, an equity trade off that you're in the office less. Um, but that means you have all kinds of time. You know, you're right. you're thinking about the organization in the shower, right? Because it's not just in the office that yeah. you're working. Yeah, it's a good point. And the same thing here. We've struggled with it. Um, I, you know, one of our partners, uh, he he really wants to see kind of everybody back. Um, and I get it. You know, you pay for office space, right? And and you know, we we built out a beautiful office, and you know, hey, where is everybody? Kind of thing. I, I think we've come to terms with it, and it is working. I think it, you know, kind of went a little too far in one direction, and now we're sort of in a, in a happy place. And even just before before this podcast, I talked to one of the designers, and I said, "Oh, how we have a big deadline coming up." I said, "How's it going?" And and she said, "Oh, it's going really well. I got far. I, I did work from home yesterday, and I got so much done." And I was like, "Oh, see, well, there you go. So that that's great." <laughs> you know, I, I think I think about the things that people achieve and, the, and you know, the things that people would normally say are to like, you know, think of the chips that we made today. Like people <laughs> say, you can't make something that smart, that small. You know, we, um, we did a test, like I think so many organizations, we did a test on a Tuesday morning to see if our infrastructure would support everybody working at home. Um, and um, the test went well. And then that afternoon we said, okay, everybody worked from home. Mm -hmm. And for 18 months, everybody worked from home. Now, if I did come in and said, you know what, we're going to do a test. And now everybody's going to work from home for 18 months. I get the lecture on change management. How does it never work? And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know, when, when people really are committed to make things work. And so I think part of what we need to do is evolve in, 
yes, there's time that we're in the office, but you know, how do we look at mentorship differently? How do we look at connection differently? Um, how do we look at charrettes yeah. differently? You know, we, we have to embrace the tools and a new mindset. Uh, to get to a new day. Yep, I totally agree. So, so what's next for you? What are you know? <laughs> are you, you know, do you want to you know grow from you know? Uh, what's your revenue right now? To two hundred? Yes, we're so our net is about a hundred and twenty-five. Nice. Uh, gross is probably about uh, one sixty, one sixty-five. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think we have the opportunity to double our size over the next five years. That's great. Um, and I and I and I think the key to that is each one of these practices has its you know, it, it, there's a combined growth strategy, but there's an individual growth strategy for each one of them. Um, and then and that's what we're focused on. That's awesome. That, that's amazing. Um, so. As we kind of wrap up here, is there anything um, that we haven't covered that you would like to? Uh, no, you know, I talked a little bit about uh, my, my, uh, myself personally. I have three children. Yes. Uh, so I have a 31-year-old daughter who's a school teacher, a 26-year-old daughter that's in communications, and a 19-year-old son uh, who uh, it just started college at my alma mater, actually. Okay. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I think to uh, for all of us to achieve anything that we want to in life, it takes a tremendous amount of understanding and support from uh, from our families and uh, my family has been amazing in that regard. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I say the same thing about my wife and kids. You know, you can't. Thankfully, my wife, you know, is in this business on the furniture side, so she knows a bit about it. And you know, a normal uh, a normal job like this, you know, I'm out every night, you know, and it's work. And she understands that it's work. You know, I always say she, you know, she jokes she's a single mother during the week. <laughs> and honestly, at this point, kind of on the weekend too, because I got to catch up. <laughs> But, you know, it, I, I totally agree. It's uh, it, it is wonderful to have support of the family. Um, along that. So none of the kids want to go into the business. Uh, my my middle daughter is in, the, in our marketing group. Uh, and I've and I've told her that it can be a career builder or a career. That's your choice. <laughs> That's right. So we're in early days there uh, and we'll see. I think, uh, you know, to one of your earlier questions, I I I. Um, I did feel a certain amount of pressure to come into the family business. Uh, and so I work really hard to, um, you know, to, to let my kids figure out what they want to do in life and see what intersection points there may be there. Okay. Yeah. And, and listen, Mark, the, I would say in, in our profession, the marketing role at an architecture firm is the one job I would never want. Yes. It's endless. It doesn't stop. There's always more to do. It just, and it's constant pressure. <laughs> Yes. Well, a lot of the stuff you see about us on social media is my my daughter. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So, Ozzy, thank you so much for being my guest here today on the Anti-Architect podcast. Uh, you are an amazing leader with an amazing vision. Um, you might actually be the original anti-architect now that I think about <laughs> kind, of the way that, the, kind of the way that you talk, which is awesome. Um, and again, thank you. I really appreciate you you're taking well, the time. It, it has been a great pleasure. And right back at you in terms of everything that you have not only uh, accomplished professionally, but to be able to carve the time to do this um, and to have the courage um, to really uh, you know, take on all facets uh, and take on a, uh, a, a thought-provoking name like the anti-architect. Uh, I, I, I think it is really, uh, it's, it's, it's something very compelling. And it was one of the reasons that I wanted to be here because I have great respect for you. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you.